Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Here's what we're doing. Um, if this is your first time here, we're the kind of church that reads a lot of Bible. Uh, we're going through the book of Isaiah, verse by verse. But today is just going to be a little bit different. Here's the reason why it's going to be different. As you go through the book of Isaiah, each chapter um, is not necessarily broken up uh, by the chapter and the verse. And we've seen this a couple times already where um, a thought or a prophecy actually runs through one chapter and halfway into the next. And so what Isaiah is doing today is he's wrapping in a couple concepts and we're gonna kind of go on this journey today with Isaiah and what he's doing when he starts off is we are, we've come up on the, the hinges of last week where there are some issues going on in Judah, and I'll summarize those in a second, but based off of the issues that are going on with Judah, their disobedience, God is going to do something great in response to their unfaithfulness. So if you kind of plot this with me, we've got Judah, their lack of trust in God, as a response to that, God says, I'm gonna do something great. I'm gonna give you a king better than the king that you have. So that's, a, that, that's the first kind of mountain peak that we're hitting today. But then he says, but before I, I get to that, I have to address some issues in my family. So I have to address some sin in Israel and Judah. And I also have to address some of the sin in the nation surrounding uh, Israel and Judah, primarily Assyria. But then after he walks through that concept, then we go back up to the mountaintop and we revisit where we were originally and we start talking about that grand master plan of what God's gonna do in sending this one awesome king who's gonna rule the nations. And as a response to that, Isaiah breaks out into this song. That's plotting up and down. That covers Isaiah 9, 10, 11, and 12. So today we're gonna to cover four chapters, but it's too much material for me to read verse by verse. So there's a couple chapters or a couple sections where I'm gonna read verse by verse, and there's a couple sections where Isaiah is reiterating and repeating what he's talking about, and so I'm gonna kind of summarize in those sections. So we're gonna cover nine through 12, but today's a little bit different in the sense I'm not gonna read all of it. One of the reasons why we're not reading all of it is because there's so much content, but the other reason is because um, what is happening in these chapters is uh, we've got history, we've got prophecy, we've got poetry, uh, and we've got music, all in these four chapters. And so within these chapters, you've got Isaiah just talking like a historian, like we're in a history class, and then without warning, he just completely shifts gears, and now we're over here singing. And then he shifts gears again, and now we're over here in poetry, and we're talking about things like, um, uh, you know, pillars and trees and the way that God's going to cut trees down and, and grow things out of stumps. And then he switches back over this kind of imagery and this prophecy about things that are, in Isaiah's perspective, in the near future and in the way distant future. Some things that we're talking about today haven't even happened yet. And so, as a teacher, I feel like one of the best ways for us to cover this material is to not break it up. I feel like we've got to go through 9 through 12 together. Are you with me? Are you up for the task? I hope so, because it's going to be wild. 
So here's where we are. The year is 735 BC. Judah and Israel are split in half. They're no longer a unified nation. They're split in half. Israel's in the north. Judah's in the south. They've got separate kings. They've been disobedient to the Lord. And there's a looming threat, this massive nation called Assyria. If you're looking at a map of Israel, they're in the the northeast region. And they're wanting to just conquer the whole area, the whole region. War style, coming in and just laying waste, burning everything to the ground, killing everybody in sight. Israel and Judah are both afraid of this threat, but they're not together. So what Israel decides to do is pair up with another nation in the region, Syria, form this alliance, and go against Assyria. The only problem is that two nations are not strong enough to take on this massive one. They need a third one. So their plan is to attack Judah in the south, replace their king with someone who will join the three-nation alliance and then take on Assyria. So the king at the time, Ahaz, has got an issue. He's got his northern brothers and sisters that want to overthrow him. He's also got Assyria, this massive war machine that wants to come in and overtake them. And he is at a place where he doesn't know what to do. So Isaiah, last week, comes to him and says, here's what the Lord said, don't do anything. In 13 years, the Lord is going to destroy almost all of your uh, enemies, so just don't do anything and let the Lord do what he's going to do. Ahaz had a choice, do I trust the Lord or do I find some other solution? Well, you know what he did? He decided to find some other solution. Judah... King Ahaz, went to the king of Assyria, one of the major threats, and formed alliance with him and said, we'll pay you to take out my enemy. The problem with that is that once the enemy is gone, Assyria still hates Judah, and they're going to come for him. This is all summarized in what we talked about last week with maps and everything. It's online. You can go back and watch it and listen to it for free. So if you want to go back and study and listen, please do. But now you're caught up to where we are today in Isaiah chapter 9. We ended eight with doom and gloom. It is not good for Judah because God is ticked off. He is royally upset that his people would trust the world instead of him, that they would go and form alliances with foreign nations in order to ensure their security rather than coming to him for their security. So we end eight with doom and gloom, and then we kick off nine with something completely different. In the middle of the doom and gloom, Isaiah says, because of your choices, God has brought you so low, but that's not where he's going to leave you. He's not going to leave you at the bottom of the pit that you have dug for yourself. He has a plan where he's going to pull you out and redeem you, and he's going to do it by giving you a king that is greater than any king you've ever had or any king that has ever lived. That's how we start Isaiah 9, with the great and glorious promise that every failed leader who's ever held a leadership position on earth will be eclipsed by a man who will walk this earth and rule everything. So let's get into it. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start off in verse 1, and it says this. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So previously, what everything I just described, the Lord is behind bringing the doom and gloom because of a repercussion, because of the choices they make. But in the latter time, sometime in the future, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. That's important. Let's put a little footnote there. See, in the Galilee of the nations, in this region of Galilee, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, where is Galilee? Galilee's in the north. There, Galilee is in the region of the nation who's forming alliances and coming to destroy Judah. In that area that's filled with so much Gentile culture now, they're not even God's people they're barely God's people. God is going to do something marvelous. Verse two, he says, those people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So they're gonna be so happy about this light shining, it's gonna be like people who are pulling in a big harvest at harvest time. Now most of us, we're not farmers and we don't understand the joy of pulling in a good harvest because for us, harvest is just, we just go to Publix and we walk through the grocery section, we, we just pick our lettuce, our tomatoes. We don't experience the joy of the harvest. But if you know anything about getting down into the dirt and planting and those sp seeds start sprouting and the moment you start realizing you actually have a harvest, that joy is something that's often lost on us. But the prophet uses it to describe the kind of joy that will be experienced when people who've been walking in darkness will start experiencing the light. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for, for his shoulder, the rod, his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. It's referencing something all the way back from the day of, days of Exodus. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A day is coming when all of the uh, technology that we've created for war is going to be worth nothing uh, but just fuel for the fire. We're going to burn all of it because we won't need it anymore. <clears throat> Why? Because in verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I want you to picture this. Isaiah is speaking this prophecy in darkness. Imagine him standing in the middle of darkness among a bunch of people walking in darkness. It's the middle of the night. There's no light. Nobody can see which direction to go. And all of a sudden, right on the horizon, the sun begins to come up and light starts cresting right across 
the horizon, and then it starts flooding in, and it starts filling the land around us, and as the sun gets higher, more and more things get brighter, and the land just lights up. That is what is, that's what Isaiah is describing, that this king will do for his people. This sun that's rising and, and shining light on everything, this sun is a king, and this king will be born as a child. And I told you to put a footnote in, in verse one uh, for Galilee because what he's doing is he's calling out the distinct qualities of this child who will be born among the people and bring light to everybody. He's gonna be ministering in the Gentile region. He's gonna be calling people out of darkness. He's gonna end wars, rule nations, and establish peace. Does this sound like anybody that you know? This is 700 years before Jesus was born. And then when Jesus started walking the earth, he started quoting and referencing stuff from Isaiah. Matthew, the book we just went through at the beginning of the year, quotes Isaiah over and over and over. Now where Isaiah is standing in history, he's looking forward to this moment. And where we're standing in history, we're looking back on this moment. All of history hinges on this one moment where Jesus was born, he brought light into the world, and he conquered the greatest enemy that has ever seen in the history of mankind. And it's not a nation called Assyria, it's not, an, it, it's not some foreign nation that, that we've struggled with. It's not some terrorist organization. It is the enemy of sin and death, and he conquered it by rubbing his boots in its face. He conquered death by allowing death to take him and then rising back up again. How do you conquer an enemy who will not die? You can't, and that's the point because every person in this room is given the same promise, that if you submit and follow the path of Christ, if you submit to what he said is normal and life-giving, if you follow him as a disciple, you are promised that what he did was just the very first fruits of what's coming your way, and you also will beat death, and you are promised that you also will be resurrected back to life in the end day, and you will live eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. And can I just tell you that that is infinitely better than anything that has ever been sold within the history of the church. Traditionally, we're told, or maybe we're not taught or told, but we just kind of buy into this idea that what happens is someday you're gonna die and then your spirit will just kind of float around in heaven and then for all of eternity, we're just bouncing from cloud to cloud and we're in this kind of weird spiritual state and it's just kind of all up there. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that at some time in the future when you die, you're not actually dead, it's, it's more like you're asleep than dead. And there's coming a day when Jesus will return 
In the clouds of heaven, he will split the sky. He will return with a loud trumpet sound and he will call those who have died back to life. Your physical body will raise back to life. You'll ascend up into the air and your spirit and your physical body will reunite it in the same way that Christ was resurrected and you will be given a new body and you will live in this physical form and things will be more like Eden for the rest of eternity. And that's how we're gonna share eternity. Guess what's happening in eternity? We're gonna eat. And you won't have to worry about gaining weight or checking your calories or worrying if you have too much of this food, it's gonna give you some kind of cancer. All of that, gone. You wanna play golf? You're gonna get to play golf. You like digging in the dirt? You're gonna be able to do that. You like sitting on a beach enjoying a sunset to the glory of God? That's what's coming because we're promised that when Jesus returns, he's gonna rule as an earthly king from Jerusalem and all nations are gonna be under his rule and there will be no need for wars. All the technology we've developed for wars, all of the, the, the technology we've developed as far as medicine to keep people well, all of that will be nothing more than fuel for a fire because it won't be needed anymore because what has what has risen on us is this glorious light and his name is Jesus and he's going to rule and reign this earth and he's going to set all wrong things right and it's going to be beautiful this is what Isaiah is telling us this is the great news this is, this, is the marvel, this is the news that has been, that, that, that transformed fishermen in the first century and, and made them leave their families and their boats to give them something, that it, give themselves to something that is infinitely greater. This is the thing that, that allowed Christians in the first century to stand in front of Rome and say, that Caesar is not king, Jesus is king. Jesus is the only true God man. And then they were fed to lions. This is the good news that allows our brothers and sisters in foreign countries to hide in closets and rejoice knowing that if they're too loud that someone will burst in and arrest them and murder them because of their faith. This is the good news that transforms lives. But for, for many of us, this good news has just been watered down to a thing we sing about maybe once a week and don't give it another thought the rest of our days. It's something we give affection and attention to when we're told to, but it's not something that we, we lean back on as our strength. It's not something that we, we let stir our affections. It's certainly not something that informs the way we make our decisions and how we manage our time and where we spend our money knowing that in eternity things will be coming our way that we don't need to experience and get in debt for today. Because look, one day you'll inherit that, that vacation house that you want so bad. You don't need to go into debt to get it today. What you need to do now is spend more of your time proclaiming this glorious truth and getting to the place where nothing else in this, this life matters except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because there will come a day in the history of the world where you will no longer be able to tell lost people about Jesus. That's the one thing you can't do in eternity is evangelize. So, this is great news, but before that this can take place, something needs to happen. 
God needs to deal with his people, Judah, because God will not let sin go unchecked in his house. God is in the business of rooting out sin in his people. And he is not, just because he has not dealt with it now and you've been able to live in secret with your sin for 15 years, doesn't mean that it's never gonna come out. It always, always comes out. Because we serve a holy God and he demands a holy people. And if there's one thing that we care very little about, it's holiness. It's being set apart and telling our flesh no. Because we've gotten too good at telling our flesh yes. So something must be done. We have to deal with the sin in the house. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse eight, it says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. It's the prophet's way of saying the Lord has sent a word against his people. All the people will know, verse nine, Ephraim, the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, uh, the, the, the bricks have fallen down, but we will build with dressed stones. And the sycamores, they've been cut down, but we'll replace them with cedars. The Lord raises his adversaries of resin against him. That's the, uh, pre, uh, the, the leaders of, of Syria. And stirs up his enemies, the nation of Israel. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned and his hand is stretched out still. So what is he talking about? He's now pivoted into addressing the sin of Israel and Judah. And one of the first things that he addresses is the fact that God is actively tearing down the garbage in his own house. And the moment he does, God's people come right behind and rebuild it. God says, I don't, I don't like this thing that you're spending all this time and this money on. I don't care about this. Man, if there was one thing that church people learned over the last year is that it is unhealthy to spend the majority of a church's budget on maintaining a building. I'd say we learned that. And you've got God looking down saying, these little kingdoms that you build, these little things that you pour yourself and your money and your time into. I'm doing things to, to reshift your focus and remind you it's not about this building, it's about people. There are people that are not hearing the word. There are people who are not growing, but they have a nice building to go to. So I'm, I'm, I'm washing this stuff away. I'm tearing this stuff down. I'm saying this is not important. And then the people of God say, whoa. Look at what happened to us. Look at what this pandemic has done to us. Let's, let's go back and let's rebuild. Let's do even, let's do, let's, let's go even higher next time. Now, I'm, I'm being overly hyperbolic 
to make a point. I'm not saying that every church who owns a building, they're the problem. That's not what I'm saying. The people of God need a place to gather. Something like this works. Uh, Something like a permanent building works too. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is there comes a time in the heart of the people where the temptation from the enemy says, wouldn't it be nice if you had something nice? Don't, don't, don't invest in the people, invest in the structure and the organization, because that'll eventually trickle down to the people. The problem is, it never does. All it does is it starts demanding more affection and more attention, and the people become more invested in the thing that they've built and can see with their own eyes than they actually care about the people that are made in God's image. That's always what happens. And it is something that if we're not careful of, will happen to us too. Look, we're young. We're only eight years old as a church. And there is something beautiful about the, the simplicity of the way that we do things around here. But if we think that we have got some lock on something and we're doing things right and everyone else is doing something wrong, then guess what? We have officially become the one thing that we hate. We have now elevated our structures, even if the structure is just simplicity, we've now elevated it and we don't need God to continue that function. If we're not desperate on a daily basis to need Jesus over any organization or structure that we create, we are always headed for trouble. Do do you follow? And so what Isaiah is saying to the people through He's God's mouthpiece, so God's speaking through him, is that there is a pride that wells up on the inside of people when they look at the things that they build with their own hands. They're, 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 they're so filled with it that even when God comes and says, I don't want this anymore, I want this gone, and he starts actively working to remove this, the pride on the inside of us says, no, no, we'll rebuild it. We built this in, in your name, God. And God's like, I never wanted that. I asked you to do this, but look what we did. And he's like, I know I don't want that. And he takes it and he just like knocks it down like, like an adult who walks in, kids been building this little thing and just, just like one sweep of the hand, it's just gone. We'll, we'll, we'll all rebuild it. No, don't rebuild it, he destroyed it. That cycle of arrogance, of con- being convinced you know what God wants, but refusing to obey what he's asked. This arrogance, it makes God angry and his hand is stretched out in judgment. That's what that phrase in Hebrew means. For all this, all these things you keep doing, his anger has not turned away. You think that you can turn his anger by building things in his name, but that doesn't turn his anger. His hand is stretched out still. That that phrase in Hebrew means his his fist is balled up and he's looking and he's saying, I'm telling you to stop doing that. And Lord, look what we did. No, that's not turning my anger. I'm very, very frustrated with you. And this phrase is repeated three more times throughout the end of nine and the beginning of 10. It's repeated in 917. It's repeated in 9.21, and it's repeated in 10.4. And what he's addressing when he covers uh, this phrase 
is Judah tolerating in 9, uh, 17, he's tolerating and promoting false teachers. So not only are they rebuilding the things that God is actively tearing down, they're filling these structures with false teachers, people who are leading the people astray. That kind of stuff, it fuels God's anger and his hand is outstretched still. Verse 21, Judah is rewarding and encouraging violence. How do you deal with your enemy or people that disagree with you? You make them disappear. That kind of stuff drives the Lord's anger and his hand is outstretched still. In verse 10, 4, Judah is normalizing oppression and advocating for things like crushing the widows under the weight of debt and taking advantage of the needy. To all of this, God is angry and stretches his hand out in judgment. Now what I wanna do for just a second is I wanna pause and I wanna take a, uh, an, an examination of what God's judgment is like and how it will work today. I think that we all understand and agree that one day every person in this room, every person who's had breath in their lungs will stand before the Lord on judgment day. Everyone will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for what they did with their lives. And by the grace of God, most of us will be able to stand before him and say, if it wasn't for Jesus taking away my sin, washing me clean, I would not be innocent. But because he did, I am declared innocent. But there are those who will stand and say, no, I tried to do this on my own and now I'm embarrassed as I stand before a holy God. There is judgment coming for every person one day, but the question I have today is, does God still stretch out his hand in judgment against sin, primarily sin among God's people? Does God deal harshly and judge sin in the church? Now I'm telling you, the answers to questions like that are found in here. You don't need to go and find some commentary or some extracurricular uh, material to, to find the answers to the questions that you need. Everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness, it's found right here. So if we only use this to build our theology on how God thinks about things, then we can go to Acts 5, 1 through 11 and read a story about a man and a wife who lied to the apostles about how much they sold their property for so that they could look better in the eyes of the church, but lied to God. And what did God do with them? He killed them. He killed them right in church. They dropped dead right there and the youth ministry came in and picked up their bodies and buried them out back. First Corinthians 11.30, Paul is talking with the Corinthian church about the way they handle things like communion, and he says, many of you are weak and ill and dying because there is sin in your church. 1 Peter 4.17, Peter tells us that judgment always starts in the house of God first. So if we're building a theology on how God handles his people on this side of heaven, what is our conclusion? That he will not blink at sin. He will not let it go unaddressed. 
He will deal with it. He will uh, punish it. He will do any means necessary to root that stuff out and get it out because what he is preparing for his son is a holy and spotless bride. Not some prostitute who gives herself to the world and also says, I love you, Jesus. That's not the church. The church is a clean, spotless bride, and that requires a great deal of removing and rooting and purging. And I think that that is what you've seen over the last three to four years within the church. Listen, you're not gonna stop seeing news reports from people who do not even believe there's a God calling out stuff within the church Issues of sex, sexuality, um, uh, issues of uh, uh, sexual misconduct from leadership, issues of, uh, uh, of hidden racism within leadership within churches. You're not going to stop. You're going to continue to read reports of people who are in high levels of leadership um, saying, well, I, I just reevaluated re some things. I don't know if I believe any of this anymore. You know why that stuff is happening? It's because the Lord is behind it. When you read that stuff, the temptation for the enemy is, see, see? Told you none of this stuff was worth giving your life to. Look at these bozos. Well, that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that the Lord is dealing with his people. And he's saying, I'm not gonna continue to let people stand in a spot like this and spew nonsense and garbage and have affairs when no one's looking. Not gonna let it happen. Not gonna continue to let people count money in the back rooms and shove dollar bills in their pockets. Not going to happen. Not going to continue to let the word of God be manipulated so larger kingdoms can be built and established. Not going to happen. I'm going to purge that stuff. I'm going to remove it. And it's going to be uncomfortable because it may touch someone very close to you. But you'll be okay as long as you don't elevate man higher than God. When you do, it will be crushing. When you don't, you will say the Lord is having his way. And my prayer is that this won't crush him, but it will turn him to repentance. That's why the Lord exposes garbage, because he wants his church to be clean. But for all of this dealing with the garbage in his own family, we say, Lord, what about those people out there. What about the unrighteous? First Peter 4 says judgment always starts in the house of God, but it doesn't stop there. God judges the unrighteous as well. Go to Isaiah 10, starting verse 12. It says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, so when he's done dealing with God's people, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For, for he has said, the king of Assyria has said, by the strength of my hand I've done it. Look what I've done with my own hands and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I, I remove the boundaries of people. I plunder their treasures. I'm like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the people. And I just, I pick out little, the little eggs that I want. As one who gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. 
Verse 15, this is the Lord speaking. Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? When you're using a tool, does the tool talk about how great it is? Or is it simply just a tool in the hands of a craftsman? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. So Assyria has become very arrogant with their sin just like Judah has become arrogant with their sin. They see their rivals as personal victories and personal achievements, not a work of God. They're viewing their success as God, that proof that God is weak. They're doing everything. Assyria thinks that they are uh, executing their own uh, autonomy and judgment on the world, but God comes in and says, hey guys, you're nothing but a tool in my hand. You're nothing but a saw that I choose. And I'm gonna let you continue to have success up until a specific point because you're a tool in my hand and you're gonna build what I want you to build. And so you think because you have this success that, that you can be boastful and proud and, and, and raise shouts and sing songs about yourself, but the only reason why you have success is because I've allowed you to have success. And the only reason why I've allowed you to have success is because I'm using you as a tool to punish my people. But I'm telling you that's gonna to come to an end and that's what verses 20, through 34 cover. There's this section in Isaiah 10, 20 through 34, where it seems crazy. He's mentioning all these different cities. And what God is saying is through Isaiah is that God is allowing Assyria to conquer all the cities of Judah. They're gonna pass through cities like Migron, Michmash, Galim, Madmena, Gibeam. And they're gonna have all the success and the success is just gonna build on itself and they're gonna come through and they're gonna lay waste to one town and they're gonna think, man, look at what we did. Let's go do it in the next town. And they're gonna to continue to advance. They're gonna to continue to advance. And there's gonna be no resistance. Why? Not because Assyria is amazing, but because God is using Assyria as their tool. But things are gonna stop in verse 32. It says that when they reach the city of Nob, which is a hill city right outside Jerusalem. So if you're just thinking about the geography of the region, you've got, it, you've got Jerusalem right here kind of on this little mountaintop and one little mountain over, just kind of overlooking Jerusalem is this city called Nob and Assyria is gonna have all of the success. They're just gonna roll through town after town after town through Judah and then they're gonna get to Nob, this tiny little town and things are gonna stop and they're not gonna have any more success, and they're not gonna know why, and they're gonna stand around, what, why can't we take Jerusalem? Why can't we keep going? And the Lord's like, because I don't want you to. I said, no, that's as far as you go. You're not taking this city. Now we talked about this last week when we jumped forward you know, 30-ish years and we read through Isaiah 36 where um, the, the head uh, military leader of Assyria comes and meets um, King Hezekiah in the same place that Isaiah told his dad Ahaz, don't do anything, but he ignored. And Hezekiah goes and runs and tells Isaiah, the Assyria's at the door, um, I, I, I need the Lord to save us. And Isaiah said, because you ran to the Lord and didn't find some other plan, the Lord is gonna spare your city and Assyria will not take Nob. As a matter of fact, the Babylonians are about to roll in town and they're gonna destroy Assyria. And your enemy that's at the gates, they're gone. Gone like that. 
So all of the success is because God allows it. So what we're starting to see from the prophet is that he's building our theology that God is in control, not just of our lives, but all nations and all history. That God shifts the hearts of kings just like he's just moving water down a channel. And though Assyria will come in and purge the land, God's gonna come and purge Assyria and deal with their arrogance and sin as well. And all of this judgment, when Judah has been judged, and when Assyria has been judged, and when everyone has just been completely laid waste, and there's nothing but just burning rubble and stumps, out of one of those stumps, a shoot is gonna grow out, and it's gonna be that king we talked about. So go to Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. King David's dad's name was Jesse. So he's referencing that a king will come out from the line of David. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And this king who will come after all of this land that's been laid waste, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Is this currently happening today? No, so we have now jumped forward in time. The nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra. No, he won't. Not if it's my child. But we're not talking about today. And the weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den, the, the den of a snake. No, we're talking about all kinds of things we're not doing. Verse nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations inquire and the resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, the gathered, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judas, Judah will not harass Ephraim. Brothers within the own family, they'll stop fighting with each other. 
but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. And they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and it will strike into the seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. And there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So from where Isaiah is standing, all of this is taking place in the future. But from where we're standing in history, only some of this partakes in the future. The child that Isaiah referenced in chapter nine is the same child, the same shoot of Jesse from chapter 11, and his name is Jesus. And when he walked the earth the first time, he walked in the spirit the counsel of his might, spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord. When he walked the first time, he judged the hearts of men. With the breath of his mouth, he taught things like the Sermon on the Mount. And he conquered the enemy through teaching, and it just messed everybody's theology up. Nobody could, nobody could wrap their head around this dude. That was the first coming. And then we jump into the second coming when we know he will return again. And this kingdom that he started to establish and gave charge of his people to expand will eventually cover the earth and the king will return to take his throne. And when he does, he will spread this kingdom over the entire earth. And what happens when that kingdom spreads? Peace will rule everywhere. And all of the striving and the war and the fighting between even animals and mankind and animals will be over. All of that will be destroyed. Some of you guys in here, when you watch that nature channel and you're like, man, those big cats are something else, huh? Be something that's kind of like give them a hug. Nobody ever thought that? I have. I kind of would love to like hug a lion, but I won't until in the future. Grizzly bears, man, they're wild. I would really love to just like come up and wrestle with a grizzly bear. Wouldn't try it now, but I'm promised that sometime in the future, everything that we know right now as normal will be turned upside down, and what we think is normal as far as how we function and how we keep ourselves alive and the danger we avoid, all of that will be gone, and the entire world we will view like a child views the world. I'm not afraid of that. I'm going to run as fast as I can towards it because the peace that he has established is the kind of thing that will spread throughout the entire world. And what he's gonna do when this peace is established, he's gonna raise the banner, he's gonna call nations to himself, and he's gonna destroy all of his enemies who don't wanna get in line, they're gonna be gone for good. And this all takes place at the second coming. So what we see here is that Isaiah is telling us that Jesus, this king, is the answer to man's rebellion and sin. And what he's saying is that the world, what the world needs most right now is not more inventions or more technology or more clever solutions that affect things like, you know, any, any, any major issues that are happening uh, today, anything that demands our attention, the solution to that is Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking, you're like, that seems really churchy. You're telling me that the solution to the pandemic is Jesus? 
You tell me that the solution to nations who are raging war and, and building their nuclear arsenal, you telling me that the solution to that is Jesus? That's exactly what I'm saying. Because we're told in this book that when he finally shows up, he has the authority with his words to end that overnight. To just simply say, it's done. We're not doing that anymore. And everyone's like, well, I guess we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> That's it. That's how it works. We don't need peace accords. We don't need people gathering at the table, giving, uh, well, I'll give in on this. If you give in on that, no, all of that's done. He ascends and says, all of this is done. No more war. Go play with snakes. And we're like, okay, it sounds fantastic. And so on the largest scale, yes, the solution to every issue that we have is the rule and reign of Jesus because there is no earthly leader that can bring the peace that he can bring. What is Isaiah's response to this? He breaks out in song. Isaiah 12, one, so 12 is only six verses. Let's read it. Isaiah 12, it says, you will say in that day, oh man, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. What day? The day when he returns and all things are different when he destroys his enemies and the nations are coming for peace. I'm gonna say in that day, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for, for, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation and I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name and make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So Isaiah says that when you finally see, and we've kind of hit all those points today, when you finally see what he's gonna do and how he's gonna bring it about, but then what he's gonna do, when you see all of that, you're gonna sing, praise Jesus. Look at what my God has done. At the beginning of this whole thing, I trusted my enemy instead of trusting God. And when I trusted my enemy, he enslaved me and I was a slave. But then he loved me and he saved me and he brought me out and he gave me purpose and he breathed life into me and because I, uh, because I now have purpose, I will trust him, I will serve him, I will be, I'm part of his family and though I did not trust him at the beginning, I will absolutely trust him now. So this is what Isaiah is saying to Judah and this is what Isaiah is saying to us today. This is how we're gonna close. We serve a mighty God. We serve the kind of God who says to Assyria, a massive war machine who dominated the region for 200 years, come here, come on, destroy, destroy, keep coming and stop. That's as far as you go. That's our God. Our God is the kind of God who says, I'm, gonna, I'm spreading my kingdom throughout all of the earth, but you, you, that one little guy, Chris, you false teacher, I'm dealing with you. I don't know actual Chris, that's a false teacher. I just tried to pull the name out of my. But he's the kind of God who on a global scale is moving all of the pieces according to his own good work, but also intimately involved in the lives of every single person in this world. So 
if that is true, and this is Isaiah's argument, if this is true, if we serve a God who crushes his enemies, who cracks the darkness with marvelous light, who has authority over all of the schemes of the enemy, who directs history, if we serve such a mighty God, then our biggest issue in life is him. Now let me explain what that means. Judah was convinced that their biggest issue in life was political. Their biggest issue was military. Their biggest issue was Syria and and Israel. And the question they kept asking themselves are, what are we gonna do with these threats? What are we gonna do with these issues, these problems? And Isaiah comes in and spends four chapters framing God's power and says, you you boys are asking the wrong question. You're asking, what are we gonna do with these threats? And I'm showing you that God is so powerful, he can stop them in a moment. The question you should be asking is, what are you gonna do about God? What do, we, what do we do about all these issues? The news told me these new things are happening. We got a Delta variant. What are we gonna do with these issues? And Isaiah is saying, take all that attention that you're putting on legitimate issues. They are real legitimate issues. Take all of that attention that you're putting on issues and put it on God. Do we as a people spend as much time on the reality that our God can overcome anything through trials and tribulations, do we give that as much thought as we give the thought of the things that are vying for our attention today? Isaiah is saying you're making a big deal over an issue, but it's the wrong issue. Let's hear it for making a big deal over an issue, but let's make a big deal over the right issue. And what I want for us today is to reflect on what Isaiah is saying to the people of God because we are the people of God. Like Judah, we are spending entirely too much time and energy on issues that someone told us we need to consider and entirely too little time and energy addressing the fact that we serve a holy God who goes over all of those things and can end them in a moment. Now, we do, do we serve them so that he will end them? No, we serve them because he gives us purpose through the middle of them, and that's the wild thing about the way that he works. I'm not saying that God is the kind of God that says, well, I mean, if you guys would just come serve me, if I get everybody on my team, then I'll go ahead and stop this stuff. No, most of the stuff that we see as legitimate issues started in the heart of dark men and women. We brought this crap out because of sin and darkness. And the Lord is saying, even though you have become slaves to the thing that you wanted to trust, I will still save you today. Come to me. I can end this now. Probably not end it the way you think, but I will end it in a way that you need. 
And so we walk this delicate balance. Is God saying, if you come to me, I'll end all of this stuff? Yes, he is saying that ultimately one day that will take place. But what he's saying to you today is, all of the time and attention and affection that you're spending on the things of the world that are vying for your attention. Isaiah would say, okay, just for a second though, what are you doing about God? Now why is Isaiah saying this? Because Isaiah told us that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and an angel came and touched his lips with a coal from the altar and said, your sin and your shame is washed away. Now who can I send in my place? And Isaiah said, send me. Why is Isaiah standing before the people saying, here is a better question. Not what do we do with the issues of our time, but what do we do with our God who's demanding our obedience? as a man who stood before the Lord and was profoundly changed by what he saw, he has the authority to stand before us today through scripture and to say to you, all of those legitimate issues that you have laid out before the Lord, he's not gonna say we're gonna wash them away, he's gonna say how about you put to the top of that list, what are you going to do about a holy God who is over all of these things and is now demanding your affection and your attention? because what we need is less solutions from the hands of man and more obedience from the hearts of man. We need to spend less time getting worked up of what might happen and more time surrendering our lives to the God who has demonstrated time and time and time again that all of this stuff we get worked up about means very little to him in the scope of eternity. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Do you know what you will not be thinking about when you turn one billion years old in heaven? Whatever it is that you're struggling with right now. I don't have enough money to make this, writing another job or my kids are acting a fool and my mother-in-law is living in this city and it's making me wear a mask and I gotta do this over here. Guess what we're not gonna be talking about when you turn a billion years old in heaven. And so if you're not gonna give that another thought, then stop letting it run your lives today. What are we gonna do with our God who is over all of the things that are on our list of trouble? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.